high growth mindset people i'm krishna krishanu your host and this is a podcast that equips you with the mindset to achieve success are you ready to turn your growth mindset on let's get started I've, I've met Megan in, per, in person, I know her personally, and she's been uh, like a mentor for me and a uh, quite exciting uh, journey as a, as a product leader. And she's always had very, um, very good insights. And uh, thank you, Megan. I have a chance to say thank you for the, uh, all the uh, insights you've given me and, and all the mentoring you've done to me. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I would love to explain us more about yourself. Sure. Thank you. Um, nice to be proverbially here with all of you today. Um, so yeah, my name is Megan. Uh, I've spent my career in product and in the last three, four years, three years has been in product leadership. And I would start out by just saying that my style to product leadership is almost entirely influenced by trying to be the leader that I didn't have. I had some great managers and some some really great mentors as well. I feel lucky for that. Um, but I think that you know when I got into product, I I which was about eight years ago in product um, in San Francisco when I was living there. Um, you know the discipline is quite nascent, right? I mean, design and engineering have been disciplines you can study and practice for decades. Same with marketing, same with sales. So, with product being a relatively nascent discipline, in my career, I had mostly managers who haven't done the work as an individual contributor before. And while they had other experiences to tap into, I never had um, a leader who was like a product person for their years as an individual contributor. So, I always. Um, took these mental notes and sometimes literal notes um, in a notebook about what I would do differently one day. And now I'm just kind of, every time I'm confronted with a challenge going down the list of things that I, like how would I feel if I were working with a squad? Um, what kind of memories can I channel from those experiences? And then that should guide how I lead. Um, and if it can't for whatever reason, then at least I like understand the perspective of where people are coming from. Um, so that's what I'm doing now, but I can share a little bit about how I got into product. I'll try to do a fast version because I don't want to tell anybody a history lesson, but um, basically I was working at Microsoft for three years and um, in, originally in a project management role, which was a poor fit for me. Um, it took me a little while to find my groove. And the reason it was a poor fit is because if I had to synthesize project management into two things, it would be um, how and and when and I'm not great with timelines and budgets I never have been um, in my personal life I'm lucky to have a partner who's much better at those things than I am so um, I was really a problem child in that role where I would always ask but why but why wait are you sure do we have to do this first and um, lo and behold I just like never got promoted I <laughs> was not a favorite among any um, decision makers and uh, I found myself on some shitty projects. Mm, uh, I'm gonna not be insulting to where they were based because I was sold on this like oh you'll work on these great projects and um, you'll go to exciting places and then the places that I was like sent for months on end were awful and it's because I didn't do great in that job. Um, I decided to leave that role when I was in the Bay Area, because like any good millennial living in San Francisco at that time, I wanted to work at a tiny startup, which is exactly what I did. So I left there and I went to a 23 person um, nutrition startup that was trying to basically replace a nutritionist with a new app. And back then it sounded new and flashy. So uh, I went there and I was kind of sucked into the mission and I would have done any job, honestly, like I would have taken whatever job needed to be done because I just wanted to participate in like health and wellness and making that more accessible to people. And um, it turns out that they brought me there to act as the account manager for a new client they really wanted called Microsoft. <laughs> so I couldn't escape the, the hand that fed me. And I was still trying to like appease these giant enterprise software overlords. And um, basically I learned that Microsoft wouldn't do business with us as a 23 person startup. So 
uh, unless we had an app on the Windows Phone platform. And this is pre uh, the days when Microsoft acquired Nokia, if anyone remembers that. So they really thought that like the Windows Phone platform and ecosystem would be a thing and they were investing in it. And um, lo and behold, the 23 person startup where I was working was not about to, to dedicate its product and engineering team to developing an app where there was no healthy ecosystem. So I had to get scrappy in order to win that deal. And um, I learned that Microsoft would give a $25,000 grant to any startups who chose to build an app for their platform. And I applied for the grant, I won that. And then I Googled um, how to build app Windows Phone, um, like, I don't know, immediately or something. And I found an app development studio in Belarus and um, at this particular time, I wasn't really well-traveled, let's say, in Europe. So I uh, was just like, okay, let, let's try this. And I found this development company. Turned out to be really great partners to work with. They built the app for like $18,000. And we profited seven, seven grand, which is a 23-person startup. Like you want to make anything you can, right? And uh, since it was a grant, it was tax-free. So we built the app, we got a great review in the app store. And then like weeks later, it came crashing down because there were some fatal mistakes with our database and we lost everything. And as I'm sure you know, in the States, um, we're not exactly keen on privacy. So like nobody cared about that at first, but we got a ton of bad reviews in the app store. And so I wrote each person who wrote a, a poor review um, directly and apologized. And then I wrote them again to tell them when things would be back up and running. And we turned that around into like a 4.8 star review because people were like, wow, somebody, like there's a human behind this and they reached out to me and there was like hundreds of people. Um, so uh, at that point, the VP of product welcomed me onto the team and it was just like, you obviously will do what it takes to build something useful that people like and you care about them enough to really have that human connection. So that was the accident into product. And then I knew it was the right fit because it was less about when, 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 how is this going to work? I mean, not to say those things aren't important, right? But it wasn't, that's not all there was to it. So um, from there, I went on to, to join a, an app development, uh, actually app design studio co-founded by two of the original hardware designers from Apple who created the first iPod and then the iPhone. They started a company, I joined them. And then that was really where I like just got really hooked on building stuff and shipping that, shipping things. So because it was the first um, iOS uh, studio in San Francisco, we got all the marquee clients to build their first apps. And we had a, the company had a really good reputation among some late stage startups. So it was there that I built um, like Guest Jeans, the clothing company. I built their uh, iOS and Android apps. I built Disney's Radio Disney and Disney Kids app. I also built the first commercial drone photography app in the US, which was backed by a Shark Tank startup. There were like Apple Watch. The two months after Apple Watch, we created like the first Audi and Mercedes car app, um, car apps for Apple Watch and, and so on and so forth. So that company was co-founded by a Brazilian engineer. And when we decided to expand our, our business in Brazil, um, they asked me to move there to hire a product and design team in that office. So I did that knowing no Portuguese and just like left my life in San Francisco, moved to, to Florinópolis in the south of Brazil. And um, it was really cool to hire a team. That was the first time I built teams from scratch. And um, yeah, and then I just moved for love. My partner was like, hey, I want to go do my MBA in Barcelona. I moved to Brazil for you. Are you down to come to Barcelona? I was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. So I left there realized that I had been building these things from the ground up in a really scrappy way and um, getting to work on a lot of fast paced things, but I never had full ownership end to end um, since that nutrition startup I mentioned. So I looked up like great product job, Barcelona, found Skyscanner. The process took me a long time <laughs> um, or I thought it was really long because I needed a visa. But then I eventually moved here, worked at Skyscanner and I figured that was more like my product boot camp. I learned best practices. I was humbled by the fact that the PMs who worked on my product area before me, like the previous two were both um, PhD physicists. And there were only like four of those at Skyscanner and both of them were in the shoes that I had to wear. And I was like, how, how am I gonna, like, I don't, 
I don't have that academic background. The experimentation is so sophisticated and I don't know how I'm gonna learn this. So I just like did what I usually do, which is went out and found customers and talked to them and then um, had a really successful ride there. Um, I tripled the size of our car hire revenue and built a team from two people to 40 people in just about two years. So that was like a really wild ride. And then I was recruited to join N26, the FinTech, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with. And um, I went there with lofty dreams. I thought like I, my team was really big. There were, it was um, 130 people. So for me, that was really big at the time. And uh, well, it still is. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I joined with like dreams of making banking simple. I told you earlier, I don't like timelines and budgets. So I thought, well, if I can make banking easier, even for somebody like me who doesn't enjoy it and get this chance to move into a leadership role at an exec level, like, of course I have to do it. So I left a job I loved at Skyscanner, went to N26, met a lot of great people. First time I've ever been confronted with my values and figuring out that not not everybody sees product the way that I do. And because not everybody has been an individual contributor as a product manager, they don't value autonomy the way that I do. And I don't know if you, know, you have to do it yourself in order to really recognize the importance of that. And so I left because I didn't want to work in a place that I found inconsistent with my values and my ethics. And I was really scared because I didn't stay for very long. Um, but I got lucky because Hacha reached out to me and um, they are like, the best values-driven leaders I've ever found. So it feels very humbling to work alongside them. And yeah, at Hotjar, I lead our design data and product management teams. It's my first time leading a data team. So that's a learning curve that's pretty exciting, but I'm, I'm definitely like a newbie, you know, trying to figure it out. And uh, it's probably the first place I've been for a year and I feel like I'm just getting started. So that's like more than I expected to share, but that's how I got to, to where I am today. Wow, thank you, Megan. Yeah, it's very, very, very interesting journey and also very, very international. Uh, definitely from from San Francisco to Brazil to uh, here today and, and also working remotely now because uh, as far as I know, I think Hojar, I don't know where they're based. It would be great to learn more about the, the product culture at Hojar. Well, what type of culture are you trying to build? Yeah. So Hotjar is fully remote. They have been since day one. The founders are from Malta, but unfortunately we don't have any like cool tax evasion or like gambling stuff going on. Um, so we don't really have the Maltese reputation, I guess, which is a good thing, but in that sense. Um, but yeah, the kind of product culture we're building, um, like I mentioned before, I've tried to be kind of the product leader I didn't have and doing that in a remote setting is a, is a fun challenge. So, um, you know, we're organized into tribes and squads, but the way that our culture works or like the feeling of our culture, it doesn't really depend entirely just on your org chart. Right. Um, so something I, I'll tell you a couple of things that I, that I have going on at Hotjar and then you can get a, a better sense of some examples. Um, since we're remote, fully. Uh, spontaneity is not something that we have a lot of in our day to day. So spontaneous interactions are almost entirely designed out of the equation, just because when you meet, it's intentional, right? It's not like you bump into each other and we're not quite in an augmented reality world such that that's possible just yet, at least smoothly. So in order to facilitate organic discussions, something I do is every other week, I, um, we have something called the work together budget, which in non COVID times is usually used for people to travel to go work together in person, like hang out at a co-working and, and have workshops together. So in the non travel era that we're living in right now, um, we use our work together budget to do things like if we have a happy hour, people can use this work together budget to buy um, wine or kombucha or whatever you choose. Um, or lunch together or whatever. So um, every other Wednesday during lunch, we all use our work together budget, we order lunch, and then we all share like one cool product that we're really into right now and explain why. So it has kind of a theme to it. So um, this week, yesterday, was the theme was collaboration. So which are our product crushes that have these amazing collaboration features or abilities? Um, another one that we did another time was just like which brands speak to you most and like they they hit you emotionally like an example of this is 
we use Spendesk for our corporate spending. And when I see an email from Spendesk that says, make your finance team proud, upload your receipts. I'm like, shit, I really need to upload my receipts because they're like, I respect them and I want them to respect me. So anyway, stuff like that. Like we use these little anecdotes together. Um, another thing we do is uh, instead of holding a lot of formal meetings, especially around planning or goal setting or things like that, is I hold office hours and they're available for anybody within product design or data to attend. And it's a placeholder in their calendar. So everybody is added as optional. And then they just have the chance to um, select, like they respond with a little note in the Google calendar that says, I wanna join from 12 to 12.30 and I wanna talk about this. And the cool thing is that just like we have right now, people who are interested show up. And so you'll find that other people will come to office hours and like professor style university era office hours and then just listen in. And more often than not, what happens is one product manager has better um, or like more updated data on something than I do. And then they say, oh, actually I have this, I can show you. Or, oh, I need to do a, a user interview with blah, blah, blah persona. And then they're like, oh, I just did that. So um, by, by fostering these like really informal conversations, it leads to a bit more of like um, cross-pollination across the product team. That's a bit more organic than just like this really rigid meeting structure. And I try to keep that um, alive in a lot of different ways, like, like these rituals that I mentioned. Um, another thing is that, uh, you know, at Hotjar, being fully remote, not having a chance to develop these relationships in person very frequently, um, more than I would have experienced elsewhere, uh, people really show up for special events and like team building. People get really into it. <laughs> so it's actually been an adjustment for me to um, like, I don't know, kind of overcome a little bit of my cynical nature and be like, oh, that's silly. And now I'm like, oh, I want to I want to do that. I want to participate, you know, so people will come and share their, their personal stories. Like every Friday, you know, we're 140 people and like every Friday afternoon, I would say at least 115 people show up to do drinks together. So the turnout's really high because people like that's, that's how we work. So I think I try to do the same thing with our product team. Um, one last thing on this that represents how I'm trying to build a product culture is um, I hired a, a company called Plotwolf. I recommend looking them up. I'll, I'll write it here. And um, they do storytelling coaching. And we're, we're just about to start that in two weeks. So it's a series of four storytelling private coaching sessions. And basically the, the coach will walk us through like a ton of different scenarios. And um, it really focuses nothing on like work talk in, in the in the, the sessions. Um, it focuses more on like, how do you build a narrative using the seven classic archetypes of storytelling? Or how do you tell the hero's journey? Or how do you present this bad news in a way that's not like a typical, like we, I would say like shit sandwich, like something good, something bad, something good. How can you tell bad news in a way that's a little bit more authentic and transparent? And then just like, grips people. So we're doing these storytelling workshops and we're trying to always look for things like that, that work in a remote setting and add value, but aren't just like your normal, like, oh, let's grab a beer and go on to a hangout. Well, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. I think definitely now in the in the remote time, and especially for people starting on remote like me, it's definitely yeah uh, giving that space and time to do stuff um, in a team, in a team it's it's fantastic and also it, i think it helps collaboration in the end and as you said use the term cross-pollination in the product teams which is also a very interesting note to foster innovation and 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 sharing knowledge and exchange of ideas so uh, so yeah and it definitely saves time you now as you're saying maybe someone someone has done something and they can provide with data that you don't have to search for so yeah it definitely makes it more um, collaborative to say so 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 yeah thank you thank you for the for for uh, giving us insights into 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 the product culture you're trying to build and you're building at the moment um one thing that i'm also super interesting because from the our uh, the, the talk we had together a, a month ago, I think, I was super, um, uh, yeah, surprised or uh, um, in a positive way about the meeting culture you have and how you um, take decisions and you decide who is the decision making because sometimes we are in some kind of limbo. You don't know who, who has to take the decision or if you need some 
uh, um, I don't know, some some support to to help you to take a decision or not, or if you are the ultimate decision maker. So I'll, I'll, if you could tap into that and give us more information that we can um, use uh, here at Mano Mano. Sure. So uh, as it relates to decision making, we have we try to make as many things explicit as possible. Um, the one thing that's implicit because it's kind of ingrained in our culture identity is um, if let's say that I wanted to make a decision and I wasn't sure if I have the latitude to do it or if I should, if my manager, which is our CEO should do it. Um, I will literally just say, who decides this? And if he doesn't tell me that it's him, the answer is it's me. So we have a default that the person running something decides and if their line manager or the person like in the exec team who's most um, closely aligned with this initiative doesn't speak up, they don't get to be the final owner of the decision. And I see this play out really frequently, like some of the product, some of the group product managers that I lead, when they are talking to their direct reports, which are some individual contributors, you know, I see it play out no matter where in the company this is. And I, I think that's really helpful to just be very straight up. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, the places where it probably gets most difficult to find the right like decision-making owner is when it's not just one discipline, but it's multiple disciplines involved. And because our modus operandi is quite direct, um, think, thanks to, to our founders, um, you know, if I like right now, branding, we're talking about branding and hot jar. What does the future of hot jar look like, feel like? Who does it speak to? What does it represent? I think this is a multidisciplinary initiative that's designed product marketing at the minimum. Um, and, it, it, and it wasn't clear to me who owned this decision. This was this afternoon. <laughs> so in our exec meeting, I asked our CEO, hey, I think I have a lot to contribute here. I don't need to be the owner and I don't want to be. Um, who really owns this? And what if I really disagree with, with that person who like is sitting next to me in the square next to me, at least in Zoom, right? And our CEO is just on the hook to say, actually, this lives with marketing. So you can give as much input as you want, but brand is a function of marketing and you need to use your influencing skills to make sure that your voice is heard. So there you go. And so we're really, really explicit about decision-making and our CEO wrote last year, like a confluence page about how to make great decisions fast because we don't believe that there are good slow decision makers. We believe there are good fast decision makers um, because the reality is very few decisions are a one-way door. Um, even if you fuck up and tell a customer something on accident, like you send the wrong, let's say you're changing prices or something, or your privacy policy is changing, even if you send them a comms that's incorrect, like, yeah, okay, it's a mistake, but it's not like it's an irreversible mistake that could never be undone, right? An apology can go a long way. I mentioned the story earlier about when I was um, just getting started in product and lost everybody's data on this app that just launched. Well, an apology and some outreach and some human language and just saying, like saying, ah, mea culpa, like it goes a long way. So because we try to keep that top of mind and we're not perfect, like we still hit our own little issues. Like I said, I didn't know who will own this on brand. Um, because we're pretty upfront with this, we give each other the latitude to make some mistakes and to walk things back, um, which we're not afraid to do. So I'd rather move faster. And I'm not saying that comes with a, an air of being reckless. No, like the expectation is you still produce quality work and you know there was a high bar to get through the interview process we expect to maintain that high bar once you're there um the, the idea is just don't make the same mistake again like make new ones um so that's on decision making on the meeting culture i would say that um again being remote native for seven years has given hunter a lot of time to figure out what works and what doesn't far before i joined so i can't take credit for its for what i think is a very effective meeting culture um but the idea is that we try to keep most meetings one-on-ones. So we have an anti-presentation culture and the only presentation we have is a once a month company meeting. Other than that, I don't see, I have probably seen fewer than 12 presentations in my year at Hotjar so far because they're only once a month in the company one. Um, instead, we rely a lot on pre-reads. So anytime there's a meeting invite sent, you need to have a, an objective, a decision owner, um, and then ideally a pre-read if 
they need to catch up on context or if context is unequally shared across the attendees. And um, yeah, the expectation is you share stuff ahead of time. So it takes you as the meeting organizer longer time to organize, but hopefully you put more thought in it yourself. Other people benefit and you use less time for each other or like less time synchronous. We do a lot of things that start async and then move, uh, start, start synchronous in a meeting and then um, move async as time goes on as well. In fact, our weekly exec meeting, we have a block on our calendars, but we probably only join the weekly exec uh, every other week because the other half of the time is more like, hey, I'm changing the seniority criteria for operations or, hey, we're changing a company policy on giving more parental leave or whatever it might be. And it's more like, I need you to read this and raise red flags. And that's the, that's the part that bridges the two, decision-making and meetings. When someone asks for feedback, we make it really clear that you, like each of us should try as much as possible to only ask for feedback on red flags. And we have another like cultural rule, which is you, like, let's say that there's something we're bringing to market and our product marketing partners um, make a draft of the, the comms to, to customers. Um, I, unfortunately for our marketing team, I also used to do copywriting um, for eight years. So I edit with a really heavy hand and it's a lesson. It's, a, it's a, a muscle that I need to stop flexing and stop using because it's not my job anymore. And I know that, I know it's hard for them. Um, when I review customer comms, I try as hard as I can to only highlight the things I cannot live with. And even if I would do it differently as somebody who enjoys writing and who used to do it frequently, um, I have to learn not, uh, not to object if I can live with something and only raise red flags. So because of that, it helps us move a little bit faster. Um, and then it like leaves the decision-making and the ownership to the person who's, who, you know, whose expectations were set to do exactly that. Thanks. Thanks a lot for the introduction, Megan. Um, I liked what you said at first about the the the, the distinction you make again uh, again uh, between sorry uh, leadership manager and mentor, which I think is a good way of splitting. Some sometimes the same person will have the same role, but other times in other organization, those are the three are separate. Uh, but since you went, as I understand, on from one to the next, how do you say? How do you how do you describe your current role as a product leader now after you you have been a product manager in the sense that you managed other pm and also as i understand a mentor to uh, christina at least sure um i think the role of the of the the product leader I, maybe any leader regardless of discipline but surely for me um, is to constantly show what the guardrails are so i imagine we all talk about north star and we're going here and this direction whatever yeah i mean if we're lucky we have leaders who make that stuff clear right um outside of that though outside of like the destination i think it's really important to put the guardrails in place right so if i say um at hajar we need to uh um, think with the big picture in mind, like, how are we actually going to make that happen? You know, how will we make the product a sum greater than its individual parts? And how will we not optimize for like sub optimizations locally, you know, and then, and then actually like lose sense of what the product is. And I think that that's the, that's the role, that's my role. And that's the role of product leaders is constantly show where the guardrails are. Um, you can do that through principles. You can do that through quarterly objectives or whatever framework you use. You can do that through your company values first and foremost. So like if we say, if I say, I mean, we're B2B, you could probably guess our metrics, just like in e-commerce, I could probably guess yours, right? Like B2B is bring down customer acquisition costs, increase LTV, increase engagement, not rocket science. And with those goals in mind, if I say we need to triple LTV, I don't mean do whatever it takes to triple LTV. I mean, within the confines of our values and who we want to be as a company, keeping our product principles in mind, because those are articulated very clearly. And I sent these like little stickers to everybody so they know what they are. <laughs> um, like with all of those guardrails in mind, it should equip everybody to keep, to maintain a, a very high degree of autonomy, but a very clear understanding of where the boundaries are, right? So. I think, I think I would describe my role as um, 
somebody who's trying to see see ahead but more importantly than that is putting the right guardrails in place so that people can make really really quality decisions and they don't need to come check with me right so our product principles one of them is um, emotionally connected now if you use hotjar like you you would be totally um i would totally understand if you say i don't see that in your product i don't either not yet it's it, it'll take time right but i mean that like every single line of copy is an opportunity to connect with somebody every error message every email subject line every slack message we send to our customer cooler is an opportunity to connect so that's the guardrail and that's expected across product marketing sales and then ux copy thanks for the answer you you so you'd say Am I right to think that um, a huge part of your role is influ also influencing culture within the company? It's my understanding of a really high leadership role in product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and leading by example too, right? Like if I tell um, our partners in sales and marketing that in order to have an idea considered, they need to prove, they need to come with a hypothesis and a problem, and they need to come with some evidence, qualitative, quantitative, market data, whatever. I have to hold myself to the same same standard. Um, that's hard, especially when you spent like years as an individual contributor. It's hard to just like. Yeah, it's not easy to make the adjustment, but I think that I would be a really shitty person in my role if I didn't hold myself to that standard. And I was also tired of that in other places where somebody with a great title came and tried to hit me in the face with it. I'd be like, dude, have you, you don't know this product better than me. So I try to always remember that, that like, and remind my colleagues in other disciplines, you might have a great idea, but it still might not be worth building. And here's why somebody else knows how to prioritize and size this. Now, of course, the product manager has to, has to deliver against that. They have to discover, they have to deliver, but like great product managers are building great businesses. And so they have to like show that they actually have the judgment quality to choose the right opportunity. Maybe earlier um, as, a, as a product manager, I, I probably didn't recognize is that like, you know, we're sold on these medium articles that tell us that autonomy is our best friend and we get to size everything and it has to be this balance of business and you don't economics and experience. And that's all true. But I do think that like in order to gain trust from somebody that you have the judgment to prioritize, you have to deliver in the first place. So um, I think that's a constant balance. And I, I have to do that too. So when I joined Hunter, I said earlier, um, it was right when the um, pandemic hit. And right at that moment, everything kind of came to this screeching halt. And um, we had to reconsider, like, what are we going to do from here? And that was evident across every area of the business. Every discipline had to kind of reset. And um, within product, it was my first week here. And my manager told me, okay, I know that we spent the whole interview process talking about how um, like we're, we want to create this healthy product culture of autonomy and prioritization, but we are really scared. Like churn is exploding and we're not sure what to expect. And my best bet against this is to go, to go completely shift how we capture data and let me, let me convince you why. And I respected him because his approach was to come to me and be really authentic and say like, look, you have one week of context and I have a year and a half of context here at Hotjar. And I really think this is the right thing to do. And here's why, here's my evidence. But then here are also my assumptions that no, they're not proven, but we have to start somewhere. And I, re I respect that because it sounds like what I would say, like as a PM, you're always going to have some degree of uncertainty. That's a, that's a natural, but ideally, you make your evident, you make the distinction very clear between your evidence and your assumptions. That way, if it goes wrong or uh, like it doesn't go the way you expected, you can then say, okay, which assumptions were off here or which evidence was weak, right? And ideally you get better and better at the assumptions over time um, so that you don't make the same mistakes again. And th that's exactly what we did in this case. So like even my, my role in a, not an individual contributor role, but as a product leader, a people leader, I had to just go deliver to be given the, the trust to have the judgment on what to do next, which is thankfully exactly how the, the role that I'm in now, I feel like I've earned that trust because I've delivered against that thing, which was a, a three quarter, you know, three quarter initiative across a bunch of squads. So, yeah. Wow. Thank you. I see some more people joined. I don't know if uh, if uh, anyone has a question for, for Megan. 
Um, yeah, I've got a question. Um, so you mentioned in your team, you um, have design product and data. Um, what are the working relationships like between the design team and the product team? What are your kind of methodologies to, to build product between the, the two? Sure. So I'll explain a little bit more about which roles we have in what we call experience design as well, the septone. So <clears throat> we have um, a product designer in each squad, organized into each squad, working hand in hand with the product manager and the rest of the, the squad. And then we also have um, non-product designer roles like we have user research. We also have um, two visual designers, a couple of brand designers, um, hiring for interaction designers. So anyway, you get the you get the the sense that there's a couple different textures there. So the product designers organized into tribes and squads are working with each squad um, on their quarterly objectives and are fully kind of bought in. So for example, the, the designer who works um, with our PM on our acquisition squad, like quarter every quarter, they're expected to be helping shape those objectives and uh, contributing toward them. And then the rest of the design org sets their own objectives. So in user research right now, like full transparency, one of them is um, uh, identify, like build or buy, uh, a research repository, because I'm sure you guys can relate. It's a mess to try to organize all the different artifacts and evidence that you have, right? So that's one thing. And in that, it's like, obviously user research is best suited to figure that out. They're gonna wanna know how designers and PMs wanna organize and find things as well, but that's kind of their responsibility to own that and be the decision maker there. Um, so anyway, I share this as kind of the juxtaposition of product designers mostly focused on objectives related to the squad and the business outcomes that the squad's expected to deliver. Um, and likewise, the, the non-product design roles ha have a different set of objectives. And in terms of the way that we work together, um, I would say that there's a lot of work to do. I think at Hotjar, we, we had a, a legacy of um, a much more departmental like this is design, this is product, and this is engineering. And now with tribes and squads a year and a half into this journey there, like they started a year and a half ago, I joined a year ago. Um, I think it's a lot better, uh, but the, the, I think we don't have a way to measure impact for design disciplines as a whole. And I think that that leads to some issues like, uh, and not just in Hadra, but elsewhere too. Like, how do you how do you how do you distill the impact of a product designer and assess their performance in a way that is equitable to them? When usually the PM is the one who's on the hook for the outcomes that they deliver, right? So I think that there's work that we need to do here. Another thing that we another challenge we face that we're trying to improve right now is um, the ability to take a moment and carve out intentional space to focus on bigger picture and longer term problems. I don't think this is a problem unique, um, unique to product and design, but surely it, it's something that's felt acutely. And so every six weeks we have engineering chapter days where, where engineers organize into front end and back end, and then they have their own kind of like six, every six weeks backlog of small things that they wanna to do to make some steps forward. And for product and design, I actually have product design and data all uh, doing these product chapter days as well. And so what we do is the same way I described to you earlier that every other Wednesday we have lunch together and then we go through new cool products. Well, actually on the alternating Wednesdays, we do the same setup, but we go through all the incoming feedback from customers about our product. And it's an ugly, you know, time to look in the mirror and say, oh my God, I can't believe this is still an issue after three years. Um, during that time, what we do is look at all our incoming feedback. And then we have a mirror board where we put sticky notes with links to those tickets on a user journey. And then every six weeks when the engineers are doing their chapter days, we break into product design and um, data group, like little teams. Uh, and then we tackle a different segment of that user journey to help inform what we want to build next or how those, how fixing those things could map to our objectives, which is even better because then it's not like something extra, it's something intentional. So I think just designing these ways for people to work toward common goals together, whether through like the formality of OKRs or this kind of unsophisticated, like, hey, everybody, let's order lunch, find a bunch of problems, carve them up, and then go tackle them every six weeks together, ideally in a way that's 
not uh, squad aligned, right? So I'd rather have product chapter days being times where you don't work with the same people as in your squad. Because again, that idea of cross-pollinating is really important to me. So I try to find ways to have these organic groups um, work and get to know each other as much as I can. Thank you, that's really, really interesting. It's given me lots of ideas. Cool. Okay, anyone else wants to want something or shall we continue with our uh, Q&A? Okay, okay, so uh, um, okay, so one of the next questions we have here is, um, yeah, what does your um, yeah, product management coaching or one-to-one -one focus mostly on? Uh, what is the, the main objective or, or is there like a, some kind of strategy behind it or what's the main objective at the company level or, 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 or from, your, from your gear level? So yeah, cool. So with, I think it's probably the most important thing that uh, anyone in the leadership role can do is, is their coaching. And I think that takes a lot of time. So I'm proud that probably 75% of the time I spend in meetings is one-on-ones with my team. Um, I, th those give me a lot of energy. They give me a lot of inspiration. And something that I, I made up when I was at Skyscanner with my team there um, has persisted even till now, which is I open every one-on-one -on -one with three really simple questions. What is something you did this week with, uh, for the customer? something you did for your squad and something you did for yourself. And then I keep track of those um, on a weekly basis. And then at every performance review, we have a set of criteria against which we measure performance. Um, but I also bring in this like linear look at how people told me like, this is their information. What is something I did for myself? And you can really track like, did, did they perform at their best? And if not, well, maybe they were lacking against what, you know, what one thing they did from themselves every week. Now, ideally, like we wouldn't have any surprises in a performance re review because that's really just a time to crystallize and, and finalize it. Um, I think the responsibility of a people manager is to give constant feedback. And so um, easier said than done, right? So something we do is uh, it's called sushi feedback. And um, it's sushi because it's raw and fresh and it's gonna go bad if you don't consume it right away. <laughs> so I did this literally one hour ago. Um, our, we had our company meeting, which we have once per month. And um, there were two things that I wanted to give my manager feedback on. So I pinged him on sock and said, hi, and with a little sushi emoji. And I said, three minutes. And we jumped on a call and I told him, I'll tell you actually, he's like really open. So I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Um, and I told him when somebody asks a question and then you answer and you say, actually, that's a great idea. When you say, actually, it sounds like you're surprised that they have a great idea. <laughs> so maybe don't say, actually, just say, that's a great idea. And so I do this with my team as well. It's not just to criticize my very, very great and supportive boss, honestly. Um, it's, it's just something like, I think you have to own it as a people leader. Coaching means mo a lot of hard discussions and you can't be afraid of them. It's hard to give people feedback, especially when you're, you know, back in the day when there were such, such huge age differences between seniority levels because the way the industries have evolved over time. I think it's become harder for people as the age gap closes or becomes different than it used to be to give someone feedback um, that's not glowing, right? So I try to have hard discussions and use that little sushi thing because it's like fun and playful and it's this millennial thing in between where you're like, if I make it cute, maybe it'll be a little bit easier. Um, and it is because we have this expectation, like if, if I can't catch somebody off guard with, uh, with some issue, like I would just, I wouldn't be able to sleep. So my coaching reflects that. And I try to use broad questions that are not like so day to day. And they're also not so dreamy in the future because a lot can get lost in between. So by asking, what did you do for yourself, the customer and your squad? It, it allows them to calibrate how much they want to zoom in or zoom out on a given week. Thank you so much. That was very, very, very extensive. And I think uh, uh, very insightful. Um, thank you so much. Okay. Uh, so we're supposed to uh, finish at seven, but I don't know if um, yeah, if you want to stay longer or shall we just have a last question and uh, yeah, just continue the conversation. 
We can do one more question. That's fine for me. Okay. Uh, anyone has a burning question that we'd like to uh, to ask? If no one does, I might have one. I'm sorry to get picked twice. If again, if anybody else does, um, I'm interesting to know your perspective on. You touched about that briefly in your introduction, um, saying uh, the difference that a, working for a B2B company makes uh, when you compare that for a general public company, B2C company. And I would say even more, what's the difference? What? How is the? How do you perceive the difference when what your what the company is actually selling is the product? That you're actually building cool <clears throat> so one well two big differences so let me let me share that earlier in my career i worked in a b2b startup and then for like i don't know the last six seven years has been all consumer and now i'm in b2b again so i feel like b2b is more fresh to me now even though i had done that before so two of the challenges that I feel in B2B are one, finding subjects for user research is so much harder. Um, you don't have like the volume of customers out there to go pick and choose, right? So I think recruitment of participants for interviews and qualitative research is harder. Um, not unrelated to that is that because the volume of customers is lower, um, your experimentation abilities are also fewer. So that's another challenge. Um, luckily at Hotjar, you know, we have a pretty accessible product given our low pricing. Um, so we have a healthy volume of customers. Like I think we have, we were, we capture like a million recordings a day um, and we have quite a volume. So considering B2B, we can run experiments that are, that are at a, at a nice standard um, with good confidence levels, but it's still a challenge. Like not every area of the product is getting so much traffic. So I think that's a big challenge. Um, benefits though, is that your, your revenue is just more reliable because you're not talking about pure revenue. You're talking about recurring revenue, whether it's monthly or annual and, um, churn becomes a lot more important, which means activation becomes a lot more important because the two are obviously connected. I like to think of that as on employee onboarding. Like usually when you join a company, you have a great experience, you're going to stick around and be like excited about it. But if you join and you have a terrible experience, it kind of like sets the tone for for a while. So I like to think about um, a subscription product like that as well. And then what is it like to sell a product that is just tech and doesn't have a physical component to it? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that it's, it, it reduces, um, trying to think how to put this, it reduces the opportunity for unexpected things outside your control to go wrong that influence the sentiment of the customer toward you as a brand. And for that reason, I think it's a bit easier um, to, to like at least understand where you stand for them, right? Because I imagine in e-commerce, if somebody has a poor experience with one of your partners or they don't like the product itself, like they may um, like misconstrue that as something with the place they bought it and associate it with that brand. So I think that's a challenge in the, in the B2C space. Um, I can't say I have a, a, a great preference for one or the other personally. Like I like to say that um, if we're really true to building for customers and anticipating their needs, then uh, at Hotjar, I make the joke that we should be comfortable with producing tables tomorrow. If we're really that serious, like if we're really that serious about obsessing over our customers, then we should be able to scrap this behavior analytics stuff and go make um, bamboo desks or something. Because the idea is that you care so much about their needs and their problems that you will solve them without an emotional attachment to what you built. And that's easier said than done because I've also had to retire products and I've had to retire ones that I made and that I didn't make. Like that was another part of my onboarding is we had to like kill two products as soon as I arrived fewer than one percentage of all our use was on these two products, but it was still so painful um, for most of the team. And I try to tell them if we're really obsessing over our users, we doesn't matter what widget we sell, as long as we can go to sleep at night and feel like it's consistent with our values, then, then so be it. So like, I hope I answered your question about some of the challenges about both and my indifference toward it. Again, the values part being very important. Thank you very much. Thank you, great.
Um, I, I don't know if uh, um, Megan, if you'd like to kind of uh, wrap this up um, with with uh, something you would like to share. I know we had more questions, um, but uh, the time doesn't allow us. So, uh, is there anything uh, you would like to uh, highlight or anything special that you'd like to pass on uh, to us? Um, actually, I'd like to just flip it since I've done so much talking and uh, ask for some sushi feedback. So, if anybody feels like you have something to share um, either now or if it's uncomfortable, like you can find me on LinkedIn, but I'd love to know if this was useful for you. I personally have one, sorry, I, I kept on speaking again. Uh, <laughs> other people, is, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, one key takeaway that I take uh, a lot, um, um, apart from your extensive experience, which I think is really inspiring, especially the part where you travel so much, work for a remote company. I think what's really stood out for me is the power of the narrative and storytelling. The way you introduce yourself, it just makes it so powerful. And we just, you, you never really learn lines of uh, someone's resume so well than when they're, they're taught in a, they're like presented in such a compelling way. I think that's one, apart from all the rest that you shared, I think that's the main, one of my major takeaways, how to really properly introduce yourself. Great. Thank you. Yeah, you never, you never, I, to be honest, I never um, I get fed up of, of listening to her. So uh, your, your language is also very articulate and, uh, and yeah, the way you express yourself, it's, uh, it's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy you, you, you managed to come here today to be with us and, and share your insights and uh, especially your, all your learning throughout this journey that it has been at different levels. Uh, we didn't get the chance to explain that you are also an entrepreneur and you built a physical product um, and uh, you're also on, 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 on your, uh, it's a time, like a, a, a time project that you have on the side and you do many other things. Uh, we haven't ha had the time to do that, but uh, yeah, definitely uh, you should uh, check her on, on LinkedIn where she's very active and she shares a lot of product insights. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. I see Sergio is, is jumping in. Or but uh, but yeah, uh, it's I, I have if if I if I may I have two two quick uh, comments. Sure. Um, so first, Megan, thank you. I I was reading the story on on your website of of the bags. It's it's impressive. It's fantastic. <laughs> thank uh, you. I, I think it. You know what what you express what you went through the problem. You see how you approach it. It's uh, it's incredible, honestly. And in my second point is uh, i just want to say my my hat offs to you uh, on the clever way that you use to call out uh, like that kind of bias like the example that you mentioned i think i think this is something that it's uh, it's needed across all industries across all, all different teams and people like you know start calling um, people on their behavior and so that they can be aware of it, that they can own it, that they can be responsible. And that's what's going to drive a change in the long term. So uh, pretty cool. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Um, would love to come back sometime. So thanks, everybody, and hope to be in touch. And hopefully it's going to be in person. Um, yeah. When we'll be in the offices here in Barcelona or who knows, maybe Paris. And uh, hopefully we will organize a macro product event and uh, yeah, have you as a, as a speaker. So thank you so much again. And Megan, it's been uh, fantastic. And uh, I appreciate so much uh, coming and uh, for everyone attending today. Great. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Yeah.